So tonight we're in Matthew chapter 26. Last week we started the chapter and we made it up through verse 30. The chapter began with Jesus reminding his disciples about his predictions of, a, of his coming crucifixion and resurrection. Uh, then we saw about the plot against Jesus launched by the religious leaders. We saw this woman come and anoint Jesus at the home of Simon the leper when he was having a dinner there and how the disciples protested, especially Judas. John, excuse me, Matthew doesn't tell us it was Judas, but the Apostle John tells us that it was Judas who protested. But Matthew does tell us that sometime after that dinner where Jesus was anointed by Mary, again, Matthew doesn't tell us it was Mary, but John tells us it was Mary, uh, Mary anointed Jesus and Judas, who protested because he thought that money should be given to the poor, but actually he wanted to put the money in his own pocket, so on and so on. Judas went and betrayed Jesus to the religious authorities and took 30 pieces of silver, which was a small amount of money, in exchange for giving up information on how the religious leaders could easily arrest Jesus without a controversy. Let's remember, Jesus was a public person, right? Jesus was appearing on the Temple Mount. He was mixing with the people every day. He wasn't a private man. He didn't live in a secret room somewhere. They could have found Jesus at any time, but usually when Jesus was out, he was such a public man that there were always crowds around him, and they were afraid that they might arrest him at a time when the crowds were present, and if the crowds were present, they might protest his arrest, and he might actually be the cause of starting a riot. Well, we saw then, as our study last week in Matthew 26, that they started with what we call the Last Supper, these preparations for the Passover and such, and then finally, how Jesus, after instituting what we call the Last Supper, this Passover meal, Jesus sang with his disciples and went out to the Mount of Olives. That was a very touching thing. I think we left with last week this whole image, this whole picture of Jesus singing with his disciples these psalms, Psalm 116, 17, and 18, these beautiful psalms. Now we come to verse 31. Jesus, on his way to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Again, what we have is a remarkable exchange between Jesus and the disciples. Here, after he's had this beautiful Passover supper, after he's instituted the new covenant in his blood, or announced the coming institution of it, I should say, then Jesus, leaving that upper room, leaving the place where they had this beautiful meal together, they go out and Jesus tells his disciples, every one of you will forsake me this night. You'll all leave me. And he bases this on a verse from Zechariah 13, which says this, I will strike the shepherd, meaning Jesus, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. In other words, that once the shepherd is struck, the sheep won't hang around the shepherd, but they'll scatter all different directions. And Jesus says to his disciples, you, based on this verse from Zechariah 13, you are like the sheep that will be scattered from me, the shepherd. Now, 
even when Jesus says that, which was obviously a very negative comment. Not only was it negative for the fact that he, the shepherd, would be struck, but also the sheep would be unfaithful to the shepherd. They would not hang around and hang with them. They would scatter. Then we see Peter answering back. But before Peter answers, notice what Jesus says in the midst of this. Hey, guys, I'm going to be struck. You're going to be scattered. But he says something really wonderful in verse 32. After I have been raised, I will go before you in Galilee. See, even at this moment, Jesus is giving them the assurance of his resurrection. Guys, I will be struck. You will be scattered, but I will be raised and I will be meeting up with you again. He said it very plainly, very simply, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. I don't believe that Jesus said that to condemn his disciples, but to show them that he really was in command of the situation. And let's remember this. In a few moments, before we're done with this chapter tonight, Jesus is going to be arrested and taken away on trials before the religious leaders, and he's going to be beaten viciously before we leave the text tonight. And he was in control the entire time. He was not a victim of circumstances. Have you ever read these great novels? You know, Russian novelists have a way of writing these things where they put the individual at the mercy of giant forces and bureaucracies and governments and powers that are beyond their control. And the idea is to show little man is just a pawn in the midst of great forces and circumstances under which he has no control over. Now, if you want to write that about you or me, you could write that book if you want to, but you could never write that book about Jesus Christ. He was in control and he says so after I have been raised, in verse 32. Now, in response to this, Peter says, in verse 35, listen, no way, uh, even if all, excuse me, he says this, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Then Jesus says, in verse 34, assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus knew that Peter would fail in what Peter thought would be his strong area. Peter thought of himself as a courageous man, a bold man. And by this very solemn warning, Peter, I'm telling you, you think you're strong. You you think you will die with me before you deny me. Peter, you need to know that in this area that you think of yourself as being so strong, you need to consider your own weakness and watch yourself. Jesus said it so clearly to Peter. Peter, you will be made to stumble. Peter, you will forsake me, your master. You will do it this night. You will do it before the rooster crows. You will deny that you have any association with me, that you even know me. And you won't do it only once. Peter, you are going to do it three times. Now, was this not enough warning for Peter to say, whoa, I should get on my knees and pray to God for the strength to overcome these temptations that are going to come upon me this night. But Peter was too bold. He was too self-reliant for any of that. It was an opportunity that Peter did not use. Instead, what did he say to Jesus? In verse 35, he says, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Let me ask you, who knew Peter better, Peter or Jesus? Jesus knew Peter a lot better than Peter even knew himself. And Peter overestimated himself. He was ready for a fall. But I want you to notice something. Verse 35 tells us that it was not only Peter who overestimated himself. Look at it, verse 35. And so said all the disciples. They all said this. 
they all should have heard what Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Whenever we think that we're beyond the reach of some kind of sin, we are ready for a fall. This was not a warning that the disciples or Peter took to heart. Now verse 36, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. It's an olive garden, a place where olive trees grow. And in this small olive orchard, there's an olive press, which, by the way, is what Gethsemane means. It means olive press. This is just east of the Temple Mount area in Jerusalem, across the ravine of the Brook Kidron, and on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. Today you go there, and it's surrounded by ancient olive trees. The olives from that neighborhood were crushed for their oil, so too the Son of God would be crushed in that very little garden that grew olive trees. And as Jesus went there in verse 37, and he began to pray, it says, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Jesus was disturbed. In part, he was disturbed because he knew that in just a few hours, he would be crucified. He would be hanging upon a cross. And listen, that was a horrific physical torture. To know that you would undergo the, the physical ordeal of crucifixion would make any man filled with dread. And as he came to Gethsemane from central Jerusalem, he would have crossed over the brook Kidron, which would have been seen in the full moon of the Passover temple, perhaps flowing red with the sacrificial blood from the temple. And so his soul is exceedingly sorrowful, he says in verse 38. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. You see, this tells us that, that more so, even more so than the physical agony that awaited Jesus on the cross, he was distressed at the spiritual horror that waited for him. You see, on that cross, Jesus would undergo much more than physical torture, the, the burning pain that would encompass his entire body and the slow death that happened to a person who was tortured to death by crucifixion. No, on that cross, Jesus would undergo a spiritual ordeal much worse than the physical ordeal. He was distressed at the spiritual horror that waited for him on the cross. Jesus there would stand in the place of guilty sinners and receive all the spiritual punishment that those sinners deserve. As Paul would later put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, listen to these words. He who knew no sin would be sin for us. That's what he would become. He wouldn't become a sinner, but he would be treated as if he was the ultimate in sin and horror from God. Please understand this, that Jesus did not die as a martyr. 
He, he didn't go to the cross a, a, as a man who was dying for a noble cause. No, he went as the sacrificial, wrath-absorbing Passover lamb. As all those Passover lambs would be killed, and they would be killed for the sin of Israel, his death would also be unique. And by the way, since his death was unique, so was his agony. I don't think we can really understand what Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you? Do you think that any human being can fully relate to what Jesus underwent? I don't think so. I think we can get a shadow of it, an echo of it. But to know what the Son of God knew in the horror that would await for him on the cross. Consider this. Jesus had lived his entire life in perfect fellowship with God his Father. Perfect fellowship. Never once being out of sync, a fellowship with his father. But now, he, on the cross, he would be treated as if he was not only a sinner, but as if he was every sinner, all of sin. And therefore, he would be out of fellowship, at least in that sense, with his own father. This is part of his agony. Yet in this hour of special agony, this hour of unique suffering that Jesus underwent, by the way, one of my newly favorite commentators, the old Puritan John Trapp, he says that there's a Greek uh, litany, a, a, a liturgy that says this, by your unknown sufferings, good Lord, deliver us. I like that. I like that mention, that there were unknown sufferings that Jesus endured. Yet in that hour of special agony, God the Father sent special help to his sons. Luke chapter 22, verse 43 says that angels came and ministered to Jesus in the garden. Isn't that beautiful? There he is in the garden of Gethsemane, in this utmost agony. And in that moment of utmost agony, his unknown sufferings, that travail of soul that nobody can really relate to, God the Father sent special assistance to the Son and angels to encourage him and shore him up at that time. Then in verse 39, Jesus said something very, very deep, very, very awesome, if I could use that word. He said, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup was he speaking of? Well, repeatedly in the Old Testament, the cup is used as a powerful picture of the wrath and the judgment of God. You've seen it in a horror movie, haven't you? Where, where some wicked person, a wicked witch or something like that, holds forth a cup and it's all bubbling and it's steaming and it's, it looks terrible. And she, as an act of evil and wickedness, she makes somebody drink that wretched cup. Well, the idea from the Old Testament is not connected with evil and wickedness. It's connected with judgment. And the idea is that there is a cup of judgment in the hand of God, and God forces his enemies to drink that cup. Let me read you from Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, it is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs all the wicked of the earth shall drain and drink down. Or how about this, Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. 
So when Jesus said, let this cup, he was thinking of the cup of the wrath and the judgment of God that he would endure and be forced to drink upon the cross. This wasn't the physical suffering, although I'm sure that was also horrific in Jesus' anticipation. But yet this was the spiritual suffering, being the target of the wrath of God upon that cross. Jesus understood that on the cross, he would become, as it were, an enemy of God. He would be judged and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury so that we would not have to drink that cup. And this was the source of Jesus' agony. Therefore, in the garden, what does he pray? He prays a very intelligent, a very heartfelt prayer. He looks to his Father in heaven and he says, Father, if there is any other way to accomplish this salvation, then let's do it that way. If there's any other way to accomplish this salvation other than me drinking this cup that the cross will represent to me, then let's do it that way. Father, if they could be saved by following Buddha, can't we just do it that way? If they could be saved by following Muhammad, if they could be saved by trusting their own heart, if they could be saved by just following their own conscience, then Lord, can't we do it that way? If it is possible, if there is any way in this universe that men and women could be reconciled back to you, God the Father, apart from me bearing their sin and the judgment that they deserve on the cross, then let's do it that way. And what did God do? God said, no, my son, there is no other way. Of course, there is a sense in which all things are possible with God. Matthew told us that in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, that with God all things are possible. Yet this is true only in a sense, because there are things that are morally impossible for God. For example, Hebrews chapter 6 tells us that it is impossible for God to lie, right? It's just impossible. God can't do it. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that. Friends, it was not morally possible for God to atone for sin and to redeem lost humanity apart from the perfected, wrath-satisfying sacrifice that Jesus prepared himself for in Gethsemane. This was the only possible way. Now listen, we know, don't you know this? that God the Father would never deny God the Son a request in prayer. Because you know that God the Son always prayed according to the heart, according to the will of the Father. And since Jesus drank the cup of judgment at the cross, we know that it is not possible for salvation to come any other way. Salvation by the work of Jesus at the cross is the only possible way. And let me say this, I'll say it boldly, that if there's any other way to be made right before God, then Jesus died an unnecessary death at the cross. It was unnecessary. If you could be saved by your own good works, if you could be saved by your religious ceremonies, if you could be saved by your good heart, if you could be saved by some other religion or some other Messiah or some other Savior, then Jesus died an unnecessary death. But it was not unnecessary. Even as Peter would later say, there is one name under heaven 
by which men must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 39, Jesus comes to this conclusion before his Father. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus came to a point of decision in Gethsemane. It wasn't that he hadn't decided before or that he hadn't consented before, but now he came to a unique point of decision. You know, he, he knew his whole life was leading up to this point. But Gethsemane was what you might call the no turning back point. This was his place of final decision. He decided once and for all to drink that cup at Gethsemane. Now he did it at Calvary, but he decided to do it once and for all at Gethsemane. You could say this. You could say that the struggle at the cross was won in the Garden of Gethsemane. What Jesus did right here set in motion our salvation. I like what one commentator said. He said this, Not your will, but mine, changed paradise to desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Let me read that again. He's thinking of what Adam did, right? Adam said to God, what? Adam said to God, not your will, but mine. So I'll read it again. Not your will, but mine, changed paradise to desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not my will, but yours, brings anguish to the man who prays it, but it transforms the desert into the kingdom and it brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. This struggle at Gethsemane, this place of crushing, it has a very important place in God's plan of redemption. If Jesus would have failed here, he would have failed at the cross. His success here made the victory at the cross possible. But listen, the struggle at the cross was won in hard-fought prayer at Gethsemane. Did you read what it said in verse 39? He fell on his face and prayed. Verse 40. Then he came to the disciples, and he found them asleep. You know, if Jesus' agony wasn't bad enough, he had to face the discouragement of knowing that the disciples weren't with him. I'll, I'll keep reading, verse 40 again. And then when he came to the disciples and found them asleep, and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Isn't that interesting? First he says, could you not watch with me one hour? Jesus valued and desired the help of his friends in this battle of prayer and decision. But even without their help, the battle would be won. You see, they didn't only fail to help him, they wounded him by their sleepiness, by their failure to do their duty. You could say this, that instead of wiping the bloody sweat off of his brow, they drew more bloody sweat out of him. And so what did Jesus say? Verse 41. By the way, I'm fascinated by what Jesus said in verse 41. I'm amazed by the greatness of his love. What does he say? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Isn't that awfully generous of Jesus towards his disciples? How about this? 
You lazy bums, wake up. Aren't you going to help me? Don't you care at all? That's not what he said. Instead, with great charity, with great compassion towards his disciples, he said, listen, I know your guy's spirit is willing. By the way, how willing was their spirit? Not very willing. But your flesh is weak. He put a very kind face on their failure. Secondly, Jesus seemed to be more concerned for what their lack of prayer would mean to them than he was concerned about what their lack of prayer meant to him. He said, watch and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. You see, Jesus found victory at the cross because he succeeded in the struggle in Gethsemane. But Peter, Peter, just like us, he failed later in temptation because he failed to watch and pray in Gethsemane. You know, the spiritual battle is often won or lost before the crisis comes. Oh, oh, we want to go to our Calvary and go to our place of great spiritual challenge like Jesus faced there at the Mount Calvary at the crucifixion. But listen, unless you're prayed up the way you should be at Gethsemane, you're not going to make it at Calvary. So he spoke very kindly about them. He warned them for their own sake. And then he continues on at verse 42. Again, a second time he went away and prayed saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed a third time saying the same words. And he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You see, he went and he prayed again. He went away and prayed. You know, when you're really fervent in prayer, you want some privacy, don't you? That's how Jesus was. So he went away a little bit and he prayed with his disciples. And when he came back in verse 43, he came back and he found them asleep again. I found a very interesting comment on this idea that the disciples couldn't stay awake at Gethsemane from Adam Clark, the commentator. He says, that is, they could not keep their eyes open. Was there nothing supernatural in this? Was there no influence here from the powers of darkness? You know what Adam Clark is suggesting? He's suggesting that these guys weren't just sleepy. Oh, hard day, can't stay awake in prayer. That would be bad enough. He's suggesting that there was part of a satanic attack and a satanic in strategy to induce them to sleep. I have to say, I, I think Adam Clark was on to something when he made that comment. I feel that I have experienced such spiritual attack. Now, I'm not talking about the, the sleepiness that comes upon us when we try to pray late at night or through the night. I'm talking about that, of course, and I mean, we, we may struggle with that, and late night prayers can just lead to sleepiness and all that. I mean, I learned a long time ago that my, my, my dedicated time of prayer can't be laying down on my bed, right? I mean, I'll go to sleep pretty fast. Not, not that I think it's wrong to lay down and pray. I mean, I do that as well, but I don't make that my dedicated time of prayer. I think it's a beautiful thing to fall asleep praying to God, don't you? But don't kid yourself. That, that isn't a time where you're really focused in on prayer. But yet, I think I know something by my own experience of this spiritual attack. You know, I, I keep a fairly busy schedule. 
And so I'm doing a lot of things. And sometimes the way that Satan attacks me before I'm going to preach is sometimes with an overwhelming feeling of fatigue and tiredness. I can't tell you how many times it's happened because in the last several years, it's happened a lot. But, but I'll be there, for example, on Sunday morning at a church and I'll be ready to preach. And there I am. I'm sitting through the worship service and I feel so tired. I feel like I can hardly get up. I feel like I'm going to fall asleep right there in my chair. I, I, can, I can almost describe, it, it, it's more than just a normal fatigue. It really is. It's like a spiritual attack that comes upon me. And then when I get up to preach and I get behind that pulpit and I say, let's open our Bibles too, it's like it goes away. I say, okay, here I am. You couldn't, but it's a very strange feeling. And I think this is part of what the disciples were experiencing. This was more than just fatigue. This was a spiritual attack. But Jesus, Jesus battled back against the spiritual attack. Verse 44, it says he prayed a third time and then finally resigned to do his father's will at that beautiful place of decision. Verse 46, he says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Some people think that on that little hill where the Garden of Gethsemane is, Jesus could see a procession of torches from the troops and the soldiers and the people that Judas was leading to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him. And Jesus could say, look, guys, get up, because now they're coming to arrest me. And Jesus wasn't saying that, say, let's get out of here as fast as we can. No, Jesus was saying, let's face these guys straight up. I will rise to meet you, Judas. I am in control of all events. Verse 47, and while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, whomever I kiss, that is the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? And they laid hands, and they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Verse 47 tells us that they brought a great multitude with swords and clubs to arrest Jesus. They clearly regarded him as a dangerous man, and they came with great force to take him. And who did it? Verse 47 tells us it was Judas. Behold, Judas, it says in verse 47. He received the payment. Where can we arrest Jesus where it'll be quiet, where there won't be a crowd, where there won't be a mob? And Judas knew. Judas knew, I know a place where Jesus likes to go pray. He'll probably go there after this meeting in the upper room with his disciples. I think he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and pray there. One man I read suggests that maybe Judas led the, the soldiers first to the upper room, right? Because that's where Jesus and the disciples were when Judas left them. Maybe Judas left them, led them to the upper room and they found that Jesus and the disciples weren't there. And then Judas says, well, if he's not here, I think I know where he'll be. Let's go over to the Garden of Gethsemane. By the way, if Judas knew where to find Jesus, don't you think that Jesus knew that Judas would know where to find him? And don't you think that if Jesus had wanted to, he could say, guys, tonight we don't go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. We go to another place to pray. Don't you think Jesus could have said that? 
But he knew. Yet he knew that this is what the Father wanted. And Jesus, you could say this, he went right into the trap and Judas comes up to him and immediately he kisses him. The Greek is very emphatic. It says he kissed him heartily. And when he kissed him, he identified Jesus with those words, greetings, rabbi, which were terribly hypocritical words, were they not? What a, what a damnable man Judas was. To betray Jesus for such low motives, for such a cheap price, with such an ironic greeting. Hail, Master, I respect you. Is essentially what Judas was saying to Jesus. And what did Jesus say? With loving, heartfelt words and contrast, he called Judas friend. By the way, the way that he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Let me just read you a quote from Charles Spurgeon, talking about the modern way that people betray Jesus. He said this, The sign of Judas was typical of the way in which Jesus, Jesus is generally betrayed. When men intend to undermine the inspiration of Scripture, how do they begin their books? Why, always with a declaration that they wish to promote the truth of Christ. Christ's name is often slandered by those who make a loud profession of attachment to him, and then they sin as foully as the chief of transgressors. So once Jesus was identified, the soldiers laid hold of him, by the way, before the soldiers could lay hold of Jesus, John chapter 18 tells us that they asked Jesus to identify himself. And he said, I am. And all the soldiers immediately fell backwards. Well, they had the courage or the, the arrogance to stand up and still come back and lay hold of Jesus and arrest him. And Jesus could have just kept saying, I am, until the soldiers were far enough away that he could just leave, right? But he didn't. He submitted to the arrest, and in verse 51, he's carried away. And suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now we learn from the other Gospels, John chapter 18 in particular, that this unnamed swordsman who pulled out the sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, that this was Peter. And there's a lot that we could say about it, but that belongs more properly to the text of John. And we're trying to focus here on the text of Matthew. Let's just say this. Peter may have very well had the sword because there were a lot of robbers. There were a lot of, of, of difficult people out that day. Maybe it was just a normal thing for protection. But Peter's sword use did no good whatsoever. Matter of fact, all he could do is cut off an ear. Now, look, 
courageous for carrying a sword. You're courageous for swinging the sword. But you're not very effective, Peter. Uh, An ear on the ground isn't exactly going to make all the soldiers leave. And you just wonder what would have happened if Jesus had not, as it says in the other Gospels, picked up that ear and healed it instantly. Then Peter might have been crucified right alongside of Jesus. But Jesus said something very interesting in verse 53. He said, listen, if I wanted to, God would provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. Please remember this, that had Jesus wanted the help, he would have had divine help immediately at his side. Jesus could have merely said a word, Father, send them. He could have merely thought the thought. And let me tell you, there were 12 legions of angels. Friends, that is thousands and thousands of angels. They say a Roman legion was made up of anywhere between four and 6,000 soldiers. So what's four times 12? 48 or something like that, right? You could have almost 50,000 angels at Jesus' command, and they would have come and rescued him. And oh, how they wanted to. Could you imagine how the angels looked down from heaven and were outraged at what they saw happening to their Savior? Outraged at what they saw happening to their God, Jesus Christ, God the Son. And how they were just ready to wreak vengeance upon those people who were bold enough to arrest the Son of God. But Jesus said, no, I know that they're there. I know that they would help me, but I will not use their help. But if I wanted them, they would come. By the way, just so you know, 2 Kings chapter 19 tells us that on one night, one angel killed 185,000 men. Now, what do you think about 50,000 angels could do? Jesus had all this power at his disposal. Nevertheless, he submitted to be arrested, and verse 56 tells us, that all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now think about that. All the disciples scattered. They all ran for their own safety. A few of them, Peter and John at least, followed back to see what would happen in a distance. But none of them stood beside Jesus. Where was the disciple to stand beside Jesus and say, listen, I've given my life to this man. Whatever you accuse him of, you can accuse me of also. I'm with him. Which one of the disciples said that? Not a single one. Instead, it was fulfilled what Jesus had said. All of you will be made to stumble because of me. Verse 57. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Do you get the picture? From the Garden of Gethsemane, they move over to the household of Caiaphas, where Caiaphas, the high priest, will conduct sort of a, a preliminary trial, a preliminary examination of Jesus. And Peter initially flees along with the other disciples. They run, they scatter from the soldiers at the Garden of Gethsemane. By the way, you imagine Peter had more reason to run from anybody else than anybody else did because he's the guy who had the sword, right? Peter runs, but then he starts feeling guilty, right? He hears the words of Jesus echoing in his mind, you'll deny me, you'll forsake me. Peter says, no, I have to go back and meet up with Jesus. And so he follows him from a distance. And when Jesus is on trial before Caiaphas, as we just read, 
Peter is there at a distance, looking through the lattice, looking from a distance, observing the scene, but from a very safe distance. And let me say this. Before Jesus came to the home of Caiaphas, he was first led to the home of Annas. The Gospel of John tells us this. Annas was the ex-high priest and sort of the power behind the throne of the high priesthood. But Caiaphas had the title. And so Jesus went from Annas to Caiaphas. Verse 57 tells us that the scribes and the elders were assembled. He gathered together some small committee amongst the Sanhedrin to pass judgment upon Jesus. Now you should know that this happened in the middle of the night, right? After the break of dawn, the Sanhedrin gathered again, this time in an official session, and they conducted the trial that's described in Luke chapter 22. But now, in Matthew, they're meeting in the middle of the night with probably a smaller committee of the Sanhedrin with sort of a preliminary trial of Jesus. And Peter, as it says in verse 58, follows from a distance. Now verse 59. Now the chief priests... The elders and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death and found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. So here he is. Jesus at this secret nighttime trial before this committee of the Sanhedrin. By the way, this nighttime trial was illegal according to the Sanhedrin's own laws and regulations. According to Jewish law, all criminal trials had to begin and had to end in the daylight. Therefore, though the decision to condemn Jesus was already made... They conducted a second trial in the daylight. That's recorded in Luke chapter 22. Because they knew that the first one, the real trial, had no legal standings. And I could go through a long list of legal irregularities, legal problems in this trial that they made of Jesus. For example, according to Jewish law, criminal cases could not be tried during the Passover season. And this was Passover. According to Jewish law, Only an acquittal, only a not guilty verdict could be issued on the day of the trial. Guilty verdicts had to wait one night so that the judge could allow feelings of mercy to arise within him. According to Jewish law, all the evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses who were separately examined and could not have contact with each other. And according to Jewish law, false witness was punishable by death, and nothing was done to the many false witnesses that came forth at Jesus' trial. Now listen, these were the Sanhedrin's own rules, but they broke their own rules in order to send Jesus to the cross. And so, verse 59, the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Let me ask you something. Could this be said of the life of any mere man? Take any person who has a broad, popular, public ministry or work for three years. Take a man who's been a politician for three years. 
Take a man who's been a very public figure for three years. A a man who's rubbed shoulders with hundreds or thousands of people. Take such a popular public figure and try to find some dirt under his fingernails, right? Try to find some, as we would say, skeletons in his closet. Some scandal, some wrongdoing, some person to accuse him. And it wouldn't be very hard to find such a person, would it? But listen, Jesus lived a life of such integrity, such a public life, and such a public ministry that they couldn't even find false testimony against him, much less the truth. Listen, if you wanted to dig up dirt on me, you could probably do well just with just the truth. But they couldn't even find lies that would convict Jesus. But then finally, verse 61, they found some false witnesses to twist the words of Jesus and to say, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. You see, after all the false witnesses had had their say, Jesus was finally charged with threatening to destroy the temple, as in a modern-day bomb threat today. Now, clearly, in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said this, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But this glorious prophecy of his resurrection was twisted into a terrorist threat. By the way, John makes it clear in chapter 2, verse 21, that he was speaking of the temple of his body. And so these words were twisted, but it still wasn't enough. Verse 62, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. Very interesting. The silence of Jesus at this. Now, please notice this. Jesus kept silent. The high priest was very frustrated. He said, do you answer nothing? You see, the high priest was frustrated because even after all this false testimony, he had nothing on which to convict Jesus. And so, he says, verse 63, Jesus was silent. And then it says in verse 63, Jesus kept silent and the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest put Jesus under a solemn oath and said I demand you to tell us if you are the Christ that is the Messiah the son of God he did this because the trial was going badly and he confronted Jesus by the way can I just notice something right here here Caiaphas is not acting as a judge he's acting as a prosecutor this was not the role of Caiaphas Caiaphas' role was to be a judge and not a prosecutor. But he's taking both roles here. And so being frustrated by the silence of Jesus, Caiaphas can't take it anymore. And he says, listen, are you the Messiah or are you not? Now, shouldn't we say that this was a confession that all before this, Jesus had been proved innocent? If there was enough evidence to convict Jesus so far the high priest would have used it. 
But the fact that he had to use this solemn oath proves that Jesus had thus far been innocent. And when he said, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Jesus replies, verse 64, it is as you said. Instead of defending himself, by the way, Jesus could have defended himself, could he not? Think of the defense that Jesus could have mounted. Think of all the people he could have called forth as witnesses to his deity, to his power, to his character. Think of the people he could have taught or called forth that he had taught, the people that he had healed, the dead who were risen, the blind who had seen, that the demons themselves testified to his deity. But Jesus remained silent, and even when he was forced to speak, he simply said, It is as you said. He said that he was the Christ, the Son of God, and he said it as directly as possible. I see Caiaphas as scorning Jesus here. Are you the Christ? You? You Galilean carpenter? You're not priestly. You don't have the same kind of education we do. Where are your followers? Where are your supporters? You're friendless. You're isolated. You're a nobody. And you're trying to tell me that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, it is as you said. But then in verse 64, he adds something else very powerful. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You've seen a pack of cigarettes, I trust, right? And on a package of cigarettes, they have a little warning statement put there, right? That the people who buy the cigarettes and smoke them are supposed to read and say, oh, this will kill me. Oh, this is bad for my health. Oh, this has all kinds of implications, right? It's a warning label, right? This was Jesus' warning label to Caiaphas. Caiaphas, it's just as you said, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God. But let me warn you of something, Caiaphas. Right now you sit in judgment of me. But your judgment of me is a small thing. I will sit in judgment of you. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I'm going to come with a binding and blinding judgment. And you'll see me there sitting right there at the right hand of God the Father. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, he's spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he's deserving of death. And they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? What a scene this is, isn't it? Jesus finally confronted by the high priest. I put you under a solemn oath. You tell us if you're the Christ. You tell us if you're the Son of God. And Jesus says, it is as you said. But I tell you, Caiaphas, that you are going to see me coming as the glorious judge, sitting at the right hand of the power, coming on the clouds of heaven in judgment. And then Caiaphas, he, he, he flips out. He tears his clothes, which the high priest was forbidden to do, except on the occasions of blasphemy. And he says, he has spoken blasphemy in verse 65. Oh, by the way, wouldn't you say that the accusation of blasphemy might have been correct, except that Jesus really was who he said he was. 
If you are God, it is not blasphemy to claim that you are God. It is no crime for the Christ, the Son of God, to declare who he really is. But Caiaphas says in the same breath, with, with, with all the, the fury that's in his mind, all the anger, all the hatred, he looks at Jesus and he says, he is deserving of death. I want you to think about this just for a moment. God in heaven adds humanity to his deity and he comes as a man. He doesn't come as a full-grown man. He doesn't just sort of teleport to earth as a 30-year-old man. No, 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 no. To fully identify with the human experience, he comes as a little baby. And he grows up in a home, and he's one of us. He plays with other children as we played. He grows up. He works a job. He loves his family. He takes care of people. And this Son of God never once sins. Never once He's never angry without a cause. He's never bitter. He's never uh, immoral. He's nothing but love incarnate. And then, for three years, he launches a public ministry where he teaches people nothing but the truth of God. And he heals people. And he raises people from the dead. And he sets captives free. And he does the most glorious work imaginable for three years. And mankind puts him on trial. And the verdict of the judge at that trial is to look at that, I'll say it, that perfect man and say, he deserves to die. I think that verdict displays the depths of man's depravity. God in total perfection came to earth, lived among men, and this was man's reply to God, we want to kill you. And then what did they do? Did you see that in verse 67? They spat in his face and they beat him. Others struck him with the palms of their hands. Do you know what that means? It means three things. First of all, they beat him with their closed fists. They came and they struck Jesus in the face with their closed fists. But that's not all. They slapped him with their open hands. Now, that would hurt physically, of course, not as much as the closed fist, but the, the, the open hand was more than just to hurt somebody physically. It was to insult them, right? To say, I despise you. I'll slap you in the face. I despise you. And then on top of all of that, they beat him with their closed fists. They beat him with their open hands, slapping him on the face. And they spit on his face. They spit. They, they, I don't mean to sound gross. They worked up the saliva in their mouth and they came close enough because you have to be fairly close to somebody to spit. And they spit spit in his face until their spit was running down his face. It tells us in another place that he was blindfolded as they did this, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who's the one who struck you? They spit on him. 
They hit him with their fists. They slapped him with their open hands. And it's easy to think that they did this because they didn't know who he was. Now, this is true in one sense. Because they wouldn't admit to themselves that he really was the Messiah and the Son of God. Yet in another sense, it's not true at all. Because by nature, man is an enemy of God. And for a long time, man waited to literally hit, slap, and spit in God's face. That's exactly what they're doing. Spurgeon said this. Be astonished, O heavens, and be horribly afraid. His face is the light of the universe. His person is the glory of heaven. And they began to spit on him. Alas, my God, that man should be so base. And as these religious leaders vented their hatred vented their fear, vented their anger upon Jesus as they spit upon him and beat him. It was remarkable that the immediate judgment of God did not rain down from heaven. It is remarkable that a legion of angels, or 12 legions for that matter, did not spring in defense of Jesus. It shows the amazing forbearance towards sin that God has and the staggering riches of his mercy. He went all this patiently. Now next time we're together, we're going to get a lot more into the sufferings of Jesus. So let's leave our section tonight. Looking again at Peter, verse 69. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're saying. And when he had gone out of the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were with him, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, saying, I do, saying, excuse me, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Verse 69 tells us that Peter first was not questioned before a hostile court or even an angry mob. Right? It wasn't bloodthirsty soldiers. It wasn't police. It wasn't CIA interrogators confronting Peter. Now tell us the true story here, Peter. Who was it? A servant girl. A servant girl. Peter's own fear made a servant girl a monster in his own eyes. And then somebody else came along. Another girl. She's a hostile monster before Peter. And he bowed in fear before them, saying in verse 72, I do not know the man. His sin of denying his association with Jesus grew worse with each denial. First he says, I don't know what you're talking about. Then he says, I don't know the man. He won't even say the name Jesus. And then finally he curses and swears, saying, I do not know the man. Verse 73, 
talks about those who stood by. First it was the servant girl, then it was another girl, then it was those who stood by. Those who stood by, one way to translate that, these are loungers. What One good Greek commentator, he says that these were people who were amusing themselves by tormenting him. In other words, they're making sport of it now. They see that Peter's all worried. Listen, if you don't know somebody, then you don't know him, right? Oh, sorry, I don't know. Why would you get mad if somebody accused you of knowing somebody you don't know? But the fact that Peter got so angry about it showed that there was something to it. And the passers-by, the people said, well, this is funny, isn't it? Two little girls start questioning a guy, and he starts getting all angry about it. Hey, I'm sure you know him. Look at your Galilean speech. You must be one of those guys. And that makes Peter really go crazy. And he began to curse and swear, and then the rooster crowed. And it says, verse 75, Peter remembered the word of Jesus. So he went out and wept bitterly. Peter finally remembered and took to heart what Jesus said. Isn't it sad that he did it too late? Wouldn't it be much better if Peter would have took to heart what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, it would have done him so good. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he would have said, listen, Jesus said, I'm going to be under special temptation tonight. I will watch and pray with him. But Peter didn't do that. So he took seriously the words of Jesus, just later than he should have. So all he could do now was to weep bitterly. Yet Peter would be restored and he would show a significant contrast between Judas, who's a mark of apostasy, and Peter, who is what you might call backsliding and a repentant one at that. You see, he wept bitterly. That was the beginning of Peter's repentance. What brought Peter to repentance? Well, several things. I'll just name three of them. First, the rooster's preaching brought Peter to remembrance, right? That rooster preached a sermon in the middle of the night. And listen, God can bring some pretty strange preachers into your life, right? And the, the, the crowing of the rooster brought Peter to repentance. Secondly, the loving look of Jesus brought Peter to repentance. Luke tells us, that just after the rooster crowed from a distance, Jesus, in the midst of this beating, or, or, or maybe in the midst of the trial, we don't know the exact timing of these things, how it exactly synchronized, but we know that through the distance, Peter turned and he looked, excuse me, Jesus turned and he looked at Peter in the distance, and Peter could see the face of Jesus looking at him. The look of Jesus upon him, that brought Peter to repentance. Thirdly, the gift of remembering brought Peter to repentance. Peter remembered the word of Jesus. Listen, I, I think if you are a person who needs repentance, God may bring an unusual preacher to you. He'll have Jesus look upon you. He'll give you the gift of remembrance, but you, like Peter, can repent. But friends, look, we have to admit that's purely the side story. The main story here is what Jesus went through for our salvation. We'll pick it up more next time. But can't you just see it? Can't you just see Jesus being beaten with the fists, beaten with the open hand, spit upon his face? Oh Lord, that you would suffer even this
for us. It shows the depths of his love. Father, my prayer is that right now, tonight, that to whatever extent we doubt your love for us, that that would just be gone, that we would stop doubting your love. Lord, how can we doubt such a great love for us? And Lord, we have only taken the first few steps into your passion and agony. And even in these first few steps, Lord, we're stunned by what you endured for us, what you endured in the betrayal, what you endured at Gethsemane, what you endured when you were arrested, what you endured the indignities of your trial, what you endured when you were slapped and struck and spat upon. Lord, these being only the first few steps, it reminds us of the greatness of your love. Father, forgive me, forgive us for ever doubting your love. And let us trust that you, the great Messiah, you have done this work to save us. And this is what we put our trust in. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.